Hi everybody, this is Ben, and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this podcast is not professional medical advice. The podcast is a personal project and does not represent the views of my medical school. This is episode 25 of the podcast. I'm just finishing week 28 of medical school. This was an elective vacation week. I did an elective on spirituality and medicine. And I also spent a few days working as a volunteer vaccinating people for COVID-19. I'm also going to talk about malaria, the CDC, and a little bit about some strategies for fighting tumors from the hematology and oncology block. Let's get to it. So I got to volunteer at the vaccination clinic in Kalamazoo Expo Center, a big um, convention center on the outside of town. And I was at a station paired up with someone who's a nurse anesthetist for 35 years. Um, So I started out just doing documentation, basically putting stickers on people's vaccine cards. And then for the last half hour, I switched into the vaccinator role and got to give some injections. It was really cool to learn from the nurse anesthetist. Um, He was just awesome at handling all the syringes, pulling up vaccines into the vials, collecting paperwork, talking to the patients, keeping them relaxed, and then injecting the vaccine before they even knew it. Um, I went really slow, but I did an okay job. And um, overall, I think I vaccinated about six people. And that was probably what you could call my first medical procedures on real people. I had a little bit of training beforehand from our occupational health department about giving vaccines. And and yeah, it's pretty straightforward. My second day vaccinating at the vaccinating clinic, I actually was in a different role. I was being a medical observer in the room where everybody sits for 15 minutes and gets their vaccines. So the way that we have it set up, there's kind of a, a line, a lineup to get your paperwork started. And then you get sent to one station where you get your vaccine and your vaccine card. And then you go sit in a big like airplane hangar size room with everybody else that's waiting for their 15 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on if you have some, uh, previous history of reactions to vaccines. And then, um, so I was at the front of that room with a doctor who works at, at my med school. And we both were just keeping an eye out for people who were having any, um, adverse reactions to the vaccine. There was, there were no commotions. Nobody seemed to be in any distress. One person came up and and felt lightheaded and, we recommended that they take off their mask because they hadn't been used to wearing an N95 mask and they started breathing easily and, and felt better. It was great to get to work with a, a doctor at that station. I was a little bit concerned, like, please don't let me accidentally hurt someone or miss something important that's happening out there in this room with a hundred people who've just been vaccinated. And, But I also learned some things from just watching her interact with um, the people getting vaccines. One thing that she kept saying to people as they left was, do you feel okay? 
And, and I don't know, the way she asked it was just very open and friendly. And I think that everybody who was walking out, you know, they didn't, they're walking. Um, and I don't know, they, they're probably fine. Um, and it wasn't in our description to sort of quiz everybody about how they were doing as they left. It's just an honor system. And if you're having a problem, you can, there's medical people there that can help. But the patients were really happy to be asked and happy to report that they felt okay. And I think they were gratified that someone cared to even ask in the first place. Um, one person was crying when she got her vaccine. She'd been somebody who was quarantined on a cruise ship back in February, so a year ago today, this this week. And I think it was kind of emotional for a lot of people to actually feel like maybe we were coming to the end of this long, difficult stretch. My elective was called Spirituality and Medicine, and I'm drawn to these specialties where we get to kind of go into some deeper questions about how people feel about their health and where I can have longitudinal contact with patients and even the community around the patient. So I imagine being maybe a primary care provider or a family physician or a specialty with more procedures like emergency medicine or OBGYN. They might also be good fields for me, but all of those, I think physician has to have some openness to include some spirituality discussions as part of patient care to let patients know that I want to be a partner with them. There's a really long history of health care and also of religion, and both of those things have been written about, and we have those records from all the way back to maybe 1000 to 4000 BC, BCE, in ancient Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. I was kind of aware that there was this long history that we could mine, but before this selective, I hadn't really looked into modern religious beliefs and tried to learn about how they could apply to how people want to get medical care. And that includes things like your understanding of why you got a disease. Maybe it's a challenge that has been set out for you to overcome and to learn something from, or maybe it's because of a lack of balance in your life, or maybe it's because of not having cultivated the correct relationships with supernatural forces or other people in your life. Well, addressing some of those things will maybe not take exactly a doctor, but knowing that those things are going on in the, in the mind and the spirit of the patient, I think are important for the doctor to know. One of the topics that I wanted to touch on from my last block was malaria. We just learned about this at the end, and it's malaria is a parasite, so it's like a single-celled organism, but it can not only infect our bodies, but it actually infects inside of individual cells in our bodies. So mosquitoes um, suck our blood, but there's a little bit of malaria parasite called plasmodium in, our, uh, in the mosquito's saliva, and it goes into our bloodstream and initially infects uh, cells in our liver, but then shortly after it branches out from the liver cells and infects a whole bunch of blood cells. And so it can find its way into our cells and then it uses, it just kind of sits in the middle of our cells using the energy that we've, we have our own sugars that we've gotten from our diet to reproduce, to grow. Then it bursts out of our blood cells and tries to infect new cells and then also goes into its sort of mosquito form so that if another mosquito sucks our blood, 
then it can um, go into that mosquito and spread further. Malaria actually has to have humans to live. So it comes to us from mosquitoes, but it can only complete its life cycle inside of a human host. So they only hitch rides from host to host inside of mosquitoes. There's, I think, four different kinds of mosquitoes and, uh, sorry, (laughs) many different kinds of mosquitoes, but only four kinds of malaria. One or two of them can go dormant in cells in your liver. So that means that you can sort of look like you've beaten the disease, but then it can actually come back later. Knowing which kind of malaria you have will dictate how you treat it. I said that I wanted to mention the CDC. The reason is that the CDC was initially created in the 1940s to combat malaria and eradicate malaria from the United States, and it actually has worked. So when people come into the emergency department with malaria, well, usually they come into the emergency department with a fever that's that's recurring and feeling very sick and fatigued. When they, when they do that, it's important to know if they've traveled because you don't really get malaria in the continental U.S. So they have to have traveled somewhere, a warm climate, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in uh, South America, somewhere in Southeast Asia to, to come back with malaria. I thought it was cool to see some of the projects that were uh, taken up by the CDC throughout history. One of the most important things they do is they publish a weekly report of all of the cases of deaths from different different communicable diseases in America. So that's weekly, and it talks about, um, I think, HIV, um, influenza, outbreaks of foodborne illnesses, and COVID-19. Um, and so it helps people that are planning public health to understand what's currently, what trends are happening right now in the United States. And so that's like a big surveillance operation to try to understand all that. They, um, they were deployed and first learned about Ebola in 1970s, discovered HIV in transfusion in the transfusion blood supply in the 1980s. They did rabies monitoring. We've seen um, the eradication of polio, smallpox, measles. So they've been doing a lot of work. The last thing I want to talk about is tumor treatments and cancer treatments. Um, since the cells in cancer are our own, it's really a tricky game to try and target our tumor cells. There's a paradox where rapidly dividing cells are actually more easily targeted than slowly growing cancers. There are some cancers that grow so slowly that they can never be cured because you can't get them to, to take up any of the cancer drugs. Some of the tricks that have been employed to fight cancer are making specific antibodies that target just one small piece of a tumor cell. Tumor cells happen to express a certain protein more on their surface than all the other cells, and if you find that characteristic protein, you can make an antibody that targets it and maybe knock out a bunch of tumor cells without really having a lot of toxicity to our normal cells. Another one that's amazing is taking our own immune cells out of the body and modifying them or activating them or even exposing them to some some tumor cells outside of the body and then uh, injecting them back so that they can do their work even better. Another paradoxical type of treatment strategy is debulking a tumor. That means removing some of the mass surgically of the tumor. And what that ends up doing is it increases the sort of fraction of this tumor that's actively dividing. And actively dividing cells will actually take up 
anti-tumor drugs much more rapidly. So that can just really help target that tumor. We learned a little bit about um, radiation therapy and different types of anti-cancer chemotherapies. The goal is not really to understand the exact treatment regimens yet. They're so specific. Some of the treatment protocols can be hundreds of pages long. So we're just kind of getting the lay of the land. As we learn about specific body systems, we'll also learn about treating the cancers that can arise there more specifically. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, tomorrow, I start learning about the musculoskeletal system. So I'm going to be very busy and I'll have a lot to talk about next week. Thanks to David Funkhauser for our intro and outro music. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have any questions or want me to talk about something on the podcast, please email me at b-r-o-o-t at fastmail.com. Have a great week.